Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode 15, the basketball pod. Welcome, Mike. What's going on? Bogues, how you doing, brother? Uh, never a dull moment. Uh, we, a lot, we have a lot to get through. It's been a, a fun week, a lot of off-court drama as well, so... I'm sure you've been following that. We've been texting back and forth about it, but never, never a dull moment in the NBA. I mean, this shit writes itself. Like when we, when you, when you asked me about this podcast like a few months ago, I was like, "What are we gonna like talk about? Fucking box scores." And then like <laughs> every other day, there's something that, and then today there's like four things that came in. So it's like it literally. For someone who always did his homework five minutes before class, it, it's a perfect thing to cover because. There's a million things that come up, and you, you don't even have to try sometimes, and it just comes across your lap. Oh, man, I changed the run sheet like five times, but um, I guess that's what makes it fun. But a few housekeeping issues. We have some complaints we've got to get to. Pro swears too much. That's number one. Oh, boy. So we're going to try to, we're going to, try to limit. We'll give you a couple of swears per segment, apparently. Too many fat jokes. Too many fat jokes. I'm not sure. Are you, are you fat enough to make that many fat jokes? You've been around me, brother. Come on. I mean, <laughs> seriously. Like, they have to open up retractable roofs to let me in arenas sometimes. So, But I could cut those down. But like, I take the Popeye approach, brother. I am who I am. I don't apologize for it. Although I'm not overly vulgar. I do swear a lot. But I mean, it's either you could have this or you could have me be fake like 98% of other people who do podcasts and be like nice and, you know, like tweet out God is great and ended up like cheating on my wife and fucking, you know, beating up strippers and stuff. I mean, I could do that or they could go to Joel Olstein's podcast where they don't swear, but it'll cost you about 30 grand in donations. So they, there's a few ways, but you know what? I'll, I'll try to watch. I'll try to watch myself, but I, I thought we could be genuine here and, you know, and, and try to do a good job, but I, I will watch the fat jokes a little bit. I know people aren't like me. I'm not really all that sensitive, but some people aren't really, you know, aren't really great with it. So I'll, I'll try to limit it, folks. No, that's all. I don't want to. I don't want to get in trouble with HR. Yeah, we want it to be natural. So do, you do you. Just just bringing some things up from the fans. I, I got to stop saying X, especially uh, with the X. So I've, that's really? been, yeah, that's that's been noted a few times. Apparently, I say, I think just because I say it so fast, it sounds like a neck, especially especially. But uh, I'm, I am, I do know it's spelt with an S. Everyone out there, but thanks for the feedback. We'll try our best, but um, don't hold your breath on either of those. I don't think, right? Huh? Yeah, we'll try it. Let's go to work. All right. Well, we're going to open with something I was discussing with um, in a group chat with yourself and, and Ethan Strauss, actually, um, but. Is the league juiced right now, numbers-wise? Is it, Are we seeing a league that's juiced? Um, a player's number's inflated. I have some um, some season stats here. Uh, I'm just going to go through the top five in all the categories real quick. I'll do the top three from each of them. So points per game right now, 31.3 for Brad Beal leading the league. Dame Lillard comes in at t- just under 13, 29.9. Steph Curry, 29.2. Rebounds, Capella's got 14.1. Gobert, second, 13.3. Valentunas, 12.5 in third. Assist per game, Harden with 11.1. Yeah, Westbrook, 10.7. Number three, Trey Young, 9.6. Blocks per game, you got Miles Turner with 3.5. Rudy Gobert, 2.9. Clint Capella, 2.3. Steals per game, Drew Holiday, 1.8. 
Kawhi, 1.8. TJ McConnell, 1.8. So, a three-way tie there. Field goal percentage, you got Gobert. And then a list of big guys leading that, obviously. Um, Gobert is at 65% right now, which is extraordinary. Three-pointers made. Steph Curry, number one. Buddy Heald, number two. Lillard, number three. All all tied. Three-way tie for 193 makes. Three-point percentage which is an interesting one. We'll get into a little bit later. Tony Snell is leading the league right now at 57.1%, which is amazing. We'll get into that shortly. Joe Ingles, my guy, 49.4%. Joe Harris, 48.5. Fantasy points, so I guess everything they do uh, joint together, which is basically a, a PER or per. Um, Jokic leads that at a 55.8. Giannis second, Harden third. Doncic, Westbrook, but I mean, how do you see it? I've gone back and I've got some. Da- I did some data really quickly. I did some homework. But h- how do you see it? Do you think right now the, the the numbers we see in the league are juiced up a little bit? Well, folks, you know when when you when you and I were speaking about it at first, I'm like maybe he's got a point. I mean, 57 is really high for you know for Snell and, and, and just leading the league in threes, and I'm like. You know, all these guys like Brad, you know, Bradley Bale scoring a hell of a lot of points. The assists are high. You know, the rebounds are a little bit. But then I went back to like since 2011, 2012. So basically 10 years. So I'll just go what I have real quick. And, you know, it's about average across the board, except the threes. The threes are the, uh, are up about 9.2%. But points per game leader is about 31.1. We're at 31.3. Assists, 10.9. We're at 11.1. Rebounds, 14.5 average. Uh, we're at 14.1 with the leader. Blocks are a little high, 3.5 versus 3. Steals are down. Uh, it's 1.8. The leader, the average is 2.2. Field goal percentage, 68.4 is the average leader. Threes made, uh, 294.5 uh, for the year is high. Uh, the highest right now is at 193. If you prorate that, that's at about 289. And then the threes we talked about. Now, the reason why I think some of these numbers are high and we have these things going on is obviously because of style of play. I mean, if you look at it like 12 years, I went back team numbers to like games, num- like averages and things, points per game collectively in a game. 2009, 2010 was at 200. We're at 223.2 this year, average every game. Shots per game is up by about 6.6. Threes are from 36.2 in 2009, 2010 to 69.4 a game. You know, so like obviously the, the amount of threes, the scoring. Now, the funny thing is, is like free throws per game hasn't really gone up and free throw percentage is usually right around the same as well as three-point percentage. Then now the makes are higher and the takes are higher, obviously, but the percentage is around anywhere from 35 to 37 in the last 12, you know, 10, 12 years. So, yeah, we could talk about I'll, – I'll talk about Snell later, but what are your thoughts on it, Bogues? Like, Because you brought it up, and I thought it was a good point because you know how players are, especially with contracts and, you know, trying to get ranked high in the league, like trying to like – you know, we've all – I've coached, you've all played, you played with a bunch of guys who probably hunted rebounds, hunted threes, hunted points, and they know they want to get their theirs, you know, regardless if they win or lose, they want to get their stats, you know, for one reason or another, bonuses or or MVP race or all-star, things like that. What are your thoughts on it? 
I thought it was juiced until I looked at the numbers, um, like you said. So I just did points per game and based it upon points per game. And um, so you look at the top three right now in the NBA as we stand. Beal's at 31.3, Lillard at 29.9, Steph Curry's at 29.2. So I decided to go back, you know, three sets of three decades, essentially. I've gone back to 1980 and the top three then was um, Dantley had 30.7 points a game. So a little bit under what Bill's averaging. Um, Moses Malone was at 27.8. George Gervin was at 27.1. You move to 1990. Michael Jordan was at 31.5. So currently beating today's leader in Bradley Beal. Carl Malone, 29.0. Bernard King, 28.4. And then you go to the year 2000 in Allen Iverson, 31.1. Jerry Stackhouse, 29.8. And um, Shaquille O'Neal, 28.7. So not a huge difference. I, I thought it was I thought there was there would be a bigger disparity, but it just I don't know, maybe just seems that way. But I think as a whole collectively, there's a whole lot more players in the twenties than there was back in the day. That's been the big difference, yeah. um, in my opinion, because the style of play has obviously changed. And you look at like an AI, I mean his usage was insane when he played with Philly. Everything went through him. MJ the same for the most part until Phil got there. He was everything was gone through him. Um, Shaquille O'Neal the same. So I think what's changed is you got a lot of you got a lot of like uh, probably mid level guys now that are averaging twenties because, you know, the way the way the game is is kind of coached has changed. Yeah, I agree. The pace is a lot higher, the style of play um, and, and I, I, I think there's a lot more people like clunked in there. Like before you might have someone that, now I didn't check this, but yeah, like now, like, like the top five scorers in the league, 31, 3, 29, 9, 29, 9, 29, 2, 28, 8. It's a lot of close races and guys are clunked in together, you know, where it's not like a five or six point differential from one or two. It's right there. And everybody's a lot of high twenties there. And I just think the style of play, I always used to, you know, with player development, I used to always tell our guys, look, you know, there's only, there's 450 players in the league. There's only about a hundred players that get 10 shots a game. Well, that number is probably up to about 115 that get 10 shots or more a game. So more shot attempts, more threes, more points, not necessarily a huge jump, but I think a lot more people are sort of, I think in the middle are inflating their numbers because of the style of play. And and that's sort of a lot higher. I think you notice those things. I just think that the game's changed and, and, and that's the sort of, that's the product of it. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily affecting the top, but probably more the middle than the top. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think... The optics sometimes look worse, but then the numbers prove you wrong. They've proved me wrong in this case. You know, I, I thought the way the game's refereed, it is much tighter and, and you adjust, players adjust, but it, it felt like free throws would be at an all-time high these last five or six years. And then you look at the free throw numbers and, and there was an era in the 40s or 50s where there was over 30 free throw shot a game. So, you know, it hasn't really changed that much. And like, like we've always discussed, players will get smart, they'll adapt, coaches will adapt and, hey, you can't have an armbar anymore on a guy on a drive if he's facing up. You can't even have a fingertip on him. Teams and, and players are going to adjust and I think that's happened. But one interesting one that we brought up was Tony Snell. So, I mean, 57.1% is insane to shoot from the three-point line. So, I, straight away, I, yeah. had to, I had to look at the numbers because I'm like, look, is this is this one, barely one free three-point attempt? Is this just like, you know, small numbers, small case study? So, of course, he's leading the league, but it's respectable. I mean, he's averaging, he's only averaging 5.5 points per game, but he's playing 20.9 20 minutes per game at the moment. His three-point field goal percentage is 57.1. That's on 1.4 makes for 2.5 attempts. I would 
wouldn't say it's a a big bunch of threes that he's shooting, equivalent to, to, to a Joe Ingles or a Joe Harris or anyone else in that top five, but it's still respectable and that's a pretty insane number. So I look back and the all-time league leader, all-time NBA history is Kyle Korver, who shot 53.6% from beyond the arc in 2009-10 season with the Utah Jazz. He's the current all-time leader, obviously, as, as I just said. His numbers were he made 1.13 pointers for 2.1 attempted for 53.6%. So, Snell's arguably taken more than that. And, I mean, he'll be deserved to be crowned the all-time leader, in my opinion, if he if he keeps this up. What are your thoughts? So, I went back today and watched 91, all 91 of his three-point attempts. And I think any young player, I don't care what level you are, should watch how Tony Snell shoots his threes. Because he doesn't hunt them. He doesn't do that bullshit sidestep, step back, cha-cha-cha bullshit with three hands on him. He doesn't shoot from 38 feet away from the basket. All he does, Bogues, is they spread it out. They've got Trey Young. They had Rondo, Bogdanovich. They would drive, kick to him in the corner, and it's a spot-up three. He at the, the only thing that he would do is like maybe jab at a guy once in a while. He could shoot him while he's contested, but like while the guy's running at him and he could shoot the three, he doesn't have to, he doesn't try to dribble, doesn't try to ISO. He doesn't do anything that he can't do. He's wired like a fucking sniper. Oh, excuse me. I apologize. There's my one. He's wired <laughs> like a sniper. Yeah. He's like, if you watch Bradley Cooper in uh, American Sniper, like he's like that. He like, I've, I've been around him a little bit and folks, he like gets good threes. And the 2.5 that he shoots a game, they're mostly all good looks unless it's end of game clock or end of shot clock. And that's why he shoots 57.1%. He doesn't hunt them like these other guys do. He doesn't try to shoot them in transition like these other guys do. He doesn't try to emulate guys when they set screen and rolls 30, you know, 27 feet from the basket and the guy goes under and he tries to shoot behind the screen. He just does what he does. He's a really good shooter. A lot of guys are good shooters in that league, but they take so many bad shots, they end up being at 37% or 36 or 35. Now, he's a high up to the extreme, but watching those shots, I'm like, if I'm working with a player trying to make it, I'm saying, watch this guy. Don't watch Curry. Don't watch Lillard. Don't watch McCollum. No offense to those guys. Those guys are elite shooters in the league. And they're elite shot makers at one way or another. And they, they do what they do. But this guy, this guy learns how to survive in this league. He's at 57, so he knows what he's doing. And it's not like he's shooting 0.2 per game. And he's just like gets the number of, of minimum attempts. He gets a decent amount of uh, looks. Not a high number, but a decent number. And this guy just gets good looks. And when you're hunting threes and you're taking all these contested shots off one leg, trying to be Dirk Nowinski, it's hard, man. You know, it's hard. This guy doesn't do that. And he puts his team in a position to win because he's efficient. He can make shots. He doesn't do anything that he can't do. And he's a, he's a sniper. He's, he's an impressive kid to watch if you're trying to learn how to, hey, how do I get my shots? He's the uh, he's the American Ryan Brokoff. Broker off. <laughs> 
And that's it. I assume, I, I haven't seen a lot of cl- those clips that you speak about, but I assume my assumption would be that he catches it, he's wide open, he shoots it. If he doesn't, he, he moves it on and makes the right decision with it. And that's just a testament to a lot of kids in college and high school that are trying to make it. If you do one thing in the league at an elite level, whether it be, you look at like a TJ McConnell, for instance, he's notorious for picking up full court. And that's what's kind of got him minutes. And now he's starting to get his assist numbers up. He doesn't shoot a three, won't shoot a three, but he he picks up full court at an elite level. Tony Snell, feet set, elite level. You're going to play minutes, you're going to make a living. And sometimes we have guys, like you said, that get caught up in, hey, I want to shoot that step back like James Harden. Well, there's only one of those guys generally per team with that license, maybe two. Some teams don't even have guys with that license. Um, so you, you, you kind of want to aim for a Snell and a McConnell at times. And sometimes they're disrespected by fans, by other players, but they're going to make you know some decent money. They'll be able to retire with a pretty decent um, bank account um, just from doing one thing elite. Boys and girls at home, the guy averages five a game. He makes $12.2 million a year because he can do one thing better than most people on the planet. And he can make threes and he does what he does well and he doesn't try to do things that he doesn't do well. And I've worked with countless players. A lot of them made it. A lot of them went on to do good things. But a lot of them refused to listen as well. And wanted to fight that. Wanted to watch those highlights every night. Wanted to do those you know, Instagram workouts where it's a tire, a chain, you know, you know, jumping over hoods of cars before they shoot the ball <laughs> in these workouts in the summer and they don't do anything for you. This guy works on, and I watch his pregame workouts. I have him at home. I have all the pregame workouts from my couple years in Dallas of the opposing team and watching what he does. He comes in, he gets his shots. He doesn't work on anything that he doesn't do in games. And the guy's a sniper and he's one of the best in the world at doing it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I got a, a lot of high praise for him. Yeah, fantastic. It's fantastic. Hopefully, he keeps it up. And if he keeps shooting at that clip, he's going to be the all-time record holder. And I mean, I don't see someone beating that. I mean, if he, if he holds at 57.1%, oh, that's going to be a record for a very long time, in my opinion, especially especially, yeah. especially if you're shooting over over one a game. I mean, you might get some small sample sizes of a few role players that, that, that are shooting, like you said, 0.5 or some shit, but we don't count those. And I think I think you got to have, there's a minimum attempt you have to take per season, I think, and I think it's around one or two per game. So anyhow, um, we'll get to some fun dramas. Kevin Durant, Michael Rappaport. Oh, boy. Yeah, oh boy, all right. Um, some some DMs were leaked by Rappaport. Now I think that's a separate issue. I, I don't I don't respect the fact that he leaked those DMs. The DMs were clearly had his replies probably deleted and edited um, somehow. But look, there were some uh, unfortunate things said by KD and some language that you don't condone, especially in today's environment. But these are these are in a kind of a, a closed forum. Probably a bit of banter involved. I'm not excusing what he said, but for for Rappaport, report to leak that is one thing but for number two is you know there might be a bit of a double standard here i mean kd is one of the league's best players you know potential mvp candidate at one point um and you look only only to a few weeks back with miles leonard and and the the issue that he faced um obviously a role player guy doesn't play a lot made some anti-semitic comments during a live stream basically got railroaded out of the league for the season and now you look at what KD said, which in my opinion, even though it was banter, the fact that it's been leaked now, when you look at it, 
the eye test, it's, it's probably worse than what um, what Leonard said because there was a lot more of it, unfortunately. Just a 50K fine and it's kind of being pushed under the rug. But um, how have you seen all that over there with all the all the ESPN talking heads and whatnot covering it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's sort of dominating the uh, sports talk world. And, you know, everybody wants to play God about, you know, what's worse, what's, you know, what's what's worse, who should get fined more, things like that. And, you know, I try, I try to stay out of that. Um, I, I, I definitely agree with you as far as, you know, what, you know, screenshotting DMs and putting it out there. It's, that's, I, I work with some people who did that in the past and that's some pussy shit right there. And I, I don't, I don't agree with it. And I don't agree with that. That's cowardly to do that shit. Especially from the point of view of context. Like, you don't know, like, once again, for all the people out there, they're going to be alarmed. I'm not condoning what the words used and what was said, but there's the context in some group chats. I'm in some group chats where there's some crazy shit said, but you know, hey, that guy just talks shit nonstop and just likes to banter and, and say crazy things. Hey, this is in this context. When you look at it just on on, a, on the context of, of print, of text, where, the, where you don't know what exactly was going on before that. Is that a relationship they've had for years? Whatever, right? I mean, it's very hard to judge yeah. from, from that point of view, in my opinion. But like you said, I mean, to leak that, I mean, Rappaport obviously was cloud chasing for the th- last three or four years with his Trump videos, which is fine. I mean, some of them are funny. Some of them were, in my opinion. Um, depends depends what you think is crossing the line and what isn't. But it seems like KD's his next target and poor old KD's, you know, bantering with a few journalists, which is a whole separate issue as well. We should probably let a lot of that shit go. But then he's in, he's in the national news right now as he's trying to rehab an injury. Yeah, I never tell a guy how to feel. So, obviously, look, this is what the social media stuff is and it does to you. You know, you put yourself out there by saying something regardless of if it was, you know, if it was hardcore or not that, you know, maybe you should like ignore it or not. That's not up to us. That's up to him, you know. He could he could sort of say what he wants now to a certain degree, and he has to pay the pay the piper with it as far as it getting out, and and now the league has to deal with it. And you know, however he wants to respond to it is fine. Like you know, Michael Rappaport's a, a shop blocker, right? And shop blockers are going to get dunked on once in a while. And KD fucking dunked on him something fucking fierce, and you know, with with the responses and things, and there was nothing else he could say, but. Now you got to pay the piper when that shit gets out. And look, the league, yeah, the slang and whatever he was saying, that's one thing. But the threats, you know, regardless if you're just talking shit or not, you're trying to pre- – the league is such a cash cow. Everyone's getting paid in that fucking league. And it's a shitload of money. I think I went over my swear, but I don't give a fuck. I'll, I'll, I'll buy a pass for next week. But, like, everyone's making a shitload of money. And you're trying to protect this money. And when the stuff like this leaks and gets out, it doesn't make anybody look good. And the threats is what probably impacts that almost as much as the other stuff that he was saying. And the league has to serve so many gods, you know, with so many of the groups they're trying to protect that sort of affiliated with the league. They have to respond. But I, I the threats is what sort of got to me. Like that's, that's, you know, that's a little unprofessional, whatever, but like that, but the social media stuff, you want to talk shit all the time. Like Rappaport does. Hey, look, I have a great Rappaport story. It was all-star break like three years ago. He was doing a, an all-star deal with a God Sham God and, you know, an all-star break in Charlotte. I get a, I'm in Disney world. I, I lose my family for a second. I'm walking like 200 yards from space mountain. I get a FaceTime call from God Sham God. I'm like, 
fucking all stuff break. What does he want? You know, like he should be, you know, he should be chilling somewhere on a beach, not calling my fat ass. And uh, I answer it. It's fucking Rappaport. And I'm a huge Rappaport fan. You know, I, I think he's funny. Not all the time, but I think he's funny. So, like, I have a Boston sports hat on. And if anyone doesn't know, like, he had this huge thing with Boston sports where they, you know, they, they, like, went to court against each other. They fired him. So, he starts cussing me out right away. Now, it's half banter, half not. I start cussing back at him. I said, You've, you see this motherfucker? What do you, you know, da-da-da. He's going back at me for being, you know, fat, bald, or whatever. You work for the NBS bullshit. I said, whatever. So, we were going back and forth. But that's my Rappaport story. So, I got all these families looking at me in the middle of Disney World. I'm like, oh, God, this ain't going great. But if you want to talk like that all the time with, with all these other people, sometimes people are going to come back at you. He did that Trump stuff for, for, eight, for four years. And Trump never went back at him. You know, he, he, he likes to do that stuff. And someone's going to come back at you. And this is what happens. And now KD gets fined 50 grand. Rappaport's going to have to get another C-list gig and be uh, barista number three <laughs> to make that 50,000 back and give it, it, put it back in KD's pocket. But, you know, it's just one of these things, man. Like this stuff, you know, look, you react the way you want to react to it. But it's just, it probably shouldn't have happened. Probably should have walked away from it. But it, I'm not the one to judge that. If he wants to do what he does. But Rappaport doesn't look great in this. And then the lawyer and up stuff in the, in the sending the messages out. That's not cool in my book. Oh, like the Barstool sports stuff. I follow that a little bit just because of this KD thing. And, and he, Barstool Presidente, you know, um, Portnoy. Yeah. He was suing him because they, they fired, uh, they basically were firing um, Rappaport at one point And they knew that he'd he'd kind of go extremely aggressive with some hate for them online. So then Portnoy apparently had um he had some some memes made or made of him already. And as soon as uh, Rappaport fired back, they posted those in in return and then Rappaport's then filed a defamation suit. So if you're a comedian, like you said, if you're a comedian or comedian slash, you know, social influencer, commentator, whatever, it'd be like us suing someone for swearing too much. Like you, you know, read the room. Like you're you know you, you do this every day for a living, essentially, and now you're suing Barstool for taking the piss out of you. Like, you can't, you know, dude, like, he lost, a, I lost a lot of respect for Rappaport. I, I, I didn't mind him neither. Um, like I said, some of his stuff's funny, some of it isn't. But the fact that you've, you've posted DMs and now, you know, you just lost your court case against Portnoy, which is a shit show for Rappaport's side of things. His lawyer totally screwed that up. I'm not sure if you saw it, but for people that want to have a laugh, um, I think Portnoy's posted the, the actual hearing of him giving giving his kind of account of events and it all went in his favor and he got off. But um, that's where we're at. And then look, moving on from that, we move on to about to start this podcast and then I wake up to, to a Paul Pierce video. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Which was absolutely <laughs> so. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, I posted it on Twitter and I put a smug comment saying that he's helping ESPN's push for women's empowerment by posting that video. But I mean, geez, man, like you just—he's done a, a live Instagram feed at his house, I assume, with a few of his friends, with some strippers twerking in the background, and, and you're just like, man, what are you doing? Like, it's you know, there's certain things that um, you want to do by all means. You're a grown man, go and do what you want. But I'm not sure um, with everything going on in the world that's the, probably the best route to take um on your instagram live yeah i mean i woke up to that this morning and i'm like what the fuck is going on with this like you know like it, it just doesn't give you know i've known i've known paul since i was in boston with him and it just doesn't it doesn't make ex-players look great doesn't make nba players look great 
You know, he's got a career with ESPN. I think he's he does a great job as an analyst. You know, when they go to, you know, spots when he's talking about the game, he knows a lot. Unless you mention D. Wade. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just doesn't good. It's just that it doesn't make him look good. Doesn't make ESPN look good. It's not a good deal, man. It's an unprofessional. Over 40 technology and alcohol definitely doesn't fucking go. Because <laughs> that, you know, especially when you don't understand technology and, and how Instagram works. I barely know how the fuck Instagram works, but that's definitely not the refresher course you want to take as far as trying to learn how to use it on the fly because shit like that happens. It doesn't make anyone look good, man. Yeah, and, and there'll be two th- two things I say to that. Like the, the Paul Pierce video, I'm not condoning what he did if he wants to spend his time you know doing that and hanging out with strippers by all means you know stimulate the economy and we joke about that all the time but don't be uh, kind of uh, surprised that's that's that is normal in professional sports for the most part it's just not normal to video record it um so that that's one thing and then the one thing i'd say about the kd thing is for all the people out there that are judging him about what he said go into your phone and get out a few of you you know get out the worst text message that you can find in there whether it's you know, banter with your wife, a friend, a, bo- a buddy from high school, a group chat, and post that shit online. I guarantee you, you'll get some heat for it. I don't know what what people would say. Dif- there's different things you could be saying. I hate Andrew Bogut. He's a, he's, a, he's an effing dickhead. I hate him. Like that's that's pretty derogatory. So there's there's you know people on a high horse that are, they're thinking like I'm perfect. Then yeah, bullshit. You, you take out you take out a, yeah. the worst the worst text message or, or group chat you've got on your phone. I can guarantee you. If you were in the limelight or or a person that was well known, you'd, you'd cop some shit for it. So let's not all let's not all sit there and think that that we um you know we're all perfect because I've got group chats where there's a bit of banter going on. And sometimes you say things that you know you're just trying to insult each other a little bit and toe the line. And if you take that screenshot and post it online, no context. Guess what happens? You know. Yeah, everybody's got look. Everybody does that in group chats. Everybody. I don't. I don't give a fuck who you are. You know, like we 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 go a little dark when in there. I'm not I'm not saying that like we go way over the line, but when you're with your buddies and you're talking, you're talking shit, and you're, you know, whatever. It's different. Everybody sort everybody sort of changes a little bit different when they're in the public eye versus you know around their family versus you know talking to their friends around their wives versus talking to their friends and. uh you know, it just it just gets out of hand sometimes. But to screenshot that and show it to someone else without talking to that person is, I don't give a fuck what your excuse is, man. It, it's 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 no good. Agree. Moving on back to some basketball stuff. So JJ Redick made some interesting comments that I wanted to touch on. He basically had said that he was lied to by the New Orleans front office and got into a whole rant about that. And, and these were his comments. I talked to Griff, who's the GM. I talked to Trajan Langdon. Griff basically says to me, "Come down for a month." If you still want to be traded, I give you my word, I'll get you in a situation that you like. We had four subsequent conversations, Reddick said on his podcast. Again, my agent talked to him, but I'm talking to Griff directly. Griff and I had a personal relationship. Obviously, he did not honor his word. So, JJ Reddick didn't want to come into into this season, um, didn't want to come in training camp. He wanted to be traded. And that's where the context of Griff's comments said, come in for a month. If you still hate it, we'll get you out. He followed that up by then saying, I don't think you're going to get honesty from that front office, just objectively speaking. That's not an opinion. I just don't think you're going to get that. I don't think what happened with me is necessarily an isolated incident either, but I do think across the league, front offices, they act in their best interest. I get that. I understand that. Truthfully, it's hard for me to admit this. I think I was a little naive to thinking because I was in year 15 and had attempted to do things the right way throughout my career and I honored my end of the bargain. But in terms of this front office, yeah, it's not something where I would expect certainly the agents that 
worked on this with me to ever trust that front office again. And then it's basically saying, I look at the buyout situation. Oh, I'm going to be bought out and go to the Brooklyn Nets. He said, I just wanted to be able to, on an off day, go to see my family and be within driving distance. So, his family was, they're, they're based in Philly, I think, or the Northeast somewhere. So, his argument was, trade me somewhere there, Boston, New York, Philly, Brooklyn, whatever, so he can commute to see his family. But this doesn't really pass a smell test for me. Um, it's, it's you know, it's the NBA, man. Like, I don't think teams should be held a ransom to trade you where you want to go. I mean, that just doesn't work that way. If you want out, I mean, you've signed a deal for pretty big money. I don't know what the numbers are 15 16 a year something like that but if they want to send you to bloody you know toronto you gotta go to toronto and that's the way it is but i think we're getting a little bit too far in the players camp uh, with situations like this right you know folks in the nba the team and the player it's sort of relationship before you get married right and the team's trying to do everything that's best for the team and the player is trying to get as that the team's trying to maximize and use players as far as to try to maximize, not use, but maximize every ounce of talent that they have to take them to the highest level they can win-wise or get off of them and trade them for the best asset that they can get in a trade. The player is trying to use the organization to try to make as much money as they can, give them as much security as they can, and put themselves and their family in the best position that they can. There's no innocent people in this. And it's not a bad thing. Like, they're both using each other, and they both know it, and they both should know it. And again, when you say it's a business, it's a business, it's a business, you need to understand what that actually means. And look, there's some like there's some careers like Dirk's, Dirk Nowinski's, that can go 20 years in an organization. And, you know, and everything ends pretty well. But 95% of these relationships with players and teams don't end well, especially when you get traded or released. It never ends well because, you know, players don't want to admit that they're, you know, that they, that, that they're done or, or they, they can't carry that weight anymore. And teams get pissed at players because when they leave in free agency, that's the way it goes. And I think both parties got to understand that. I'm sure that conversation did go through like I did. I'm sure Griff probably did talk to him and say, look, I'll get you in a good situation, but you can't get everything that you want. They traded him to Dallas. They got essentially a couple of players that they, they might be able to use and they traded him to a team that could actually make some noise in the playoffs. And it's a stable organization that he'll, he'll get a chance to play because they need shooting around one of the best players to play in the game. In a warm weather state, he, I think he did have a house in Austin. I'm not sure if he still does. I'm, look, I'm not trying to speak for J.J. Redick and what he should or shouldn't do, but the team owes him nothing. They could try to get him traded to a place that he wants, but they don't owe him that. You know, and look, everybody wants to get traded to fucking Philly and Brooklyn, especially Brooklyn, and it's not that easy. And look, he's having probably one of the worst career uh, years in his career. It's not easy. He's making thirteen million dollars a year, you know. So it's not the easiest thing. Now, yeah, he might want got he might wanted to get bought out and and go to another team and go to Brooklyn and choose his destination. But the team, if they can get an asset back, versus you know cutting a guy and not getting that asset back, look, they lost. You know, they lost Ball. They lost. They need toughness. 
They got that in James Johnson. I'm not really a big Awandu fan, but maybe some analytics guy might like him. Who knows? Like, I don't know. But they might get something with that. But they traded him to a pretty good situation. He didn't go to a terrible situation that he's not going to make the playoffs and this and that. I mean, look, they could win a championship. You never know. So they did give him to a decent spot. It's not like they traded him to like, you know, he didn't go to, you know, he didn't go to like, I don't know. Detroit. Fucking Iraq or something. He went, yeah, he went to, oh, Detroit, Iraq, you know, same <laughs> difference. But he didn't trade into a situation like that. He, they traded into a pretty good situation. Look, players don't own teams anything. And teams don't own players anything. Look, it's great. It's a great story. It's a great story to have. You, you play at one team your whole life. And if you want to get traded at the end of your career, the team goes, you know what? You won us three championships. Sure. We'll do that for you. It doesn't work that way in the NBA. They use you for every ounce of talent that you can give them. And you use them for every dollar that they can give you. In most situations, you'll leave to go to other teams. And other situations for more money and a better stable life. And teams will get off you quickly for a younger version of you if they can, unless they think that you could help them. And it's and it's just sort of an open relationship like that. And I think it's it's an honest one because both both parties should know what the other's trying to get. Teams trying to win a championship and, and stay you know viable and, and stay relevant. And the players trying to, you know, get in situations where they're making the most money and playing the most minutes and helping a team win or helping their own brand or whatever you want to call it. And that's that's sort of what it is. So I don't I don't really feel bad for JJ all that much because he's making 13 million bucks. He's at a good situation. And yeah, he's away from family. But look, he's been doing this for a long time. He's been on one year deals. He's been making, he made that $20 million deal when he was in Philly, I think. He did that a couple of years. He, I think he might have been in Brooklyn. I'm not sure, but like he's been in places before that, you know, that he's made good money. And, you know, he's been in, I'm sorry, he's the Clippers for a while, then Philly, then New Orleans. And they signed him to a two year deal. He was in Milwaukee for a year. Yeah, he got traded there from the Clippers, I believe. Oh, no, before the Clippers. Okay. He was, before the Clippers, he was in uh, Milwaukee for a season. Oh, Orlando to Milwaukee. That's right. And then Clippers. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, he's been around and he's been a, a vigilante these last couple of contracts with the Philly and New Orleans deals. And look, he's he's made a lot of money. He's helped a lot of teams. And, and this way, this one didn't go his way. And it is it is what it is. I understand why he's, he feels the way he does. Hey, look. We're in the business of sort of telling it straight and, and telling and sharing our experiences in the NBA. He does his podcast that does a good job doing the same thing. Uh, you know, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite and said he shouldn't say it. Although, you know, it just seems like it's a little bit sour grapes and it just didn't go his way. But that's the way he sees it. So what am I going to do? What are you going to do? You know, let's be honest. It's, it's my opinion is he wanted to join a championship team. He doesn't have a championship ring. That's the one thing he doesn't have on his resume. One of the best shooters yeah. of all time to play in the game. I think he saw an easy avenue to getting on that Brooklyn team, um, being a backup to Joe Harris. You know, can be a, a corner three guy for them, even if he doesn't play minutes. Closer to family, he gets a ring. Everyone's happy. I think that's where the bitterness has come from. Um, I think he's, like you said, he's still going to a good situation in Dallas. He's going to a situation where he might he might help them in a game four of a conference finals, possibly. You know, um, like I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, Steve Kerr role, Corey Brewer. 
Brewer that one game he had when Dallas won won the championship in um, that lockout year. Peja Stojakovic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Peja when they picked up Peja. Yeah, percent. Um, and he's he's broken down at this point. He's not a thirty minute guy, twenty minute guy. He's not even a play every night guy. But I think the sour milk comes from he's missing out on that championship ring and, and the career is closing down. And that's that's me reading between the lines. If I was honest, that's what it's about. Um, the family plays a big part. But I mean, shit, you you sign in New Orleans. If the family was a big problem for you at that point, you know what the business is like. Don't sign in New Orleans. Take less money to stay out in the Northeast. If that was that important to you, you've made enough money. So, I don't I don't buy the whole solely to be with family. I think um, maybe there's a portion of it, but I think obviously getting a championship ring is a big thing for him. Yeah. That's a little, oh, woe is me. You know, like I said, these relationships never end badly. If they, you know, if they didn't end badly, they wouldn't end. And, and that's, that's, that's the way it is. It's just, you know. So little sour grapes at the end there. He wanted to sort of, own, you know, he wanted to sort of run his own destiny at the end, and he couldn't do it. But hey, look, like you know, the, the team doesn't owe him anything. He doesn't owe the team anything. If he if he would have left them in free agency to go somewhere else for more money or a better situation for him, both parties got to look out for themselves, and that's just the the reality of the business. And you know, you just got to move on from it, man. But you know, it just seems like it was sour grapes, and, and I don't really feel bad all that much. But you know what are you gonna do, man? This is life. Yeah, and you can't you can't demand where you're gonna be traded. Generally, I mean, comparing to the Australian Football League here, the AFL, you like this pro. So mm-hmm. trades aren't as open market as the NBA, and the AFL has this out. Basically, it's an outrageous rule where, say, I'm a star player for Team X, I can say, hey, I want to be traded. I'm homesick in this city. I want to go closer to home. I nominate this club where I want to get traded to, and most teams will appease that because. What will happen is they won't want to trade. Another team's not going to want to come into the market and trade for you, knowing you don't want to be there. You just want to go to club, you know, X, Y, Z. So then all the leverage for the team you're currently with goes out the window because we have to trade you to the team you want to go to, and they usually do it. So that that's how it is over here, and that's just an outrageous, you know, it just basically limits your leverage. If I'm that team, knowing that a player wants to come and be traded to my team and, and they're not going to go anywhere else, I'm just going to give you the bare minimum and the bare minimum and the bare minimum. And then football clubs here are so worried about having a guy that doesn't want to be there around the culture of the club, they end up getting rid of him for nothing. And we see that here. And it's just it, over here, it's a whole separate issue. It's it's just a, a bad protocol for them to have. I, I hate it. And I'm, I'm waiting for a team to be like, nah, we're trading you where we're going to get the best value. But they can't do it over here because that player will just not resign or whatever. So that's where I saw the JJ Reddick um, comments. You, you're not going to get traded. Ever rarely you're going to get traded to somewhere where you're happy. That's just not, not the reality. We're in the NBA for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, some players. And like you said, it's a, it's a use me, use you relationship that you just got to get over. But um, I think it was just a bit harsh on the New Orleans front office. Like he basically shat all over them as he exited. And I don't think that's really fair. I think they've got issues in New Orleans. Don't get me wrong. Like Sam Van Gundy, I don't think it's the right coach for him. We've debated that at length. Um, they need to make some changes there. But I don't think Griff is the problem based on what, what Riddick has said. Yeah, burning a bridge. Look, I'm a little guilty of burning bridges in the past. Like if somebody really fucks you, yeah, like, okay, if you want to go at them hard and burn their bridge – that's fine. But this isn't really one of those things. I think with NBA teams that you should really go at them hard is if you're in the draft and they promise to draft you and they get you out, they get you either into the draft based on a promise, which has happened before, and the team reneges and don't draft you, or they they just say they're going to draft you and they don't draft you. That's one. And the second thing is- You stop working out with the other teams. Yep. 
Yeah, and shut it down. I've, I've seen that before. And the second thing is in free agency when they promise something and they're just putting you on hold to go it after somebody else. That, I think, yeah, that's worth burning a bridge over. But saying that, hey, we're going to do everything we can to accommodate you, and they end up trading you to a team that could be in the top three in the West come, you know, come at the end of the year, and they're playing with one of the best players, you know, to play in this game in a long time. I think that, that that's not the worst situation. And they got the best med, they got one of the best medicals in the league. They got, they got a great situation there. And I think that, you know, trading there is not the worst thing in the world. And that's not one of the, that's not a way you sort of burn a bridge. And you never know when you want a job in the league. And you don't know, like, you burn that bridge and you don't know what he's telling other people after that. Not that he, I, I not that he'll do that, but it's just, it's not really worth it. It's just one of those things you, I think you just step back from, you take it and then you move on. But hey, look, I'm not him. He could, he could feel the way he feels and, and react the way he wants. But, you know, that's just sort of my take on it. Fair enough. Russell Westbrook comments. Did you see those? They were pretty interesting. Um, he basically was asked or criticized by Stephen A. Smith um, that he's not a championship winning player. He's not going to win a championship. He followed up with some comments that were pretty long-winded, but the crux of it was, I grew up on the streets. I'm a champion. I don't have to be an NBA champion. I know many people that got NBA championships that's miserable, have done nothing for their community, have done nothing for the people around the world. So, I guess I'd follow this up with Asking you the question, should a championship define players? Um, you know, one out of 30 teams a year get the chance to win a championship. Let's be honest, as we've said before, there's probably four or five real teams that are sort of real opportunities for a championship. The rest is just filling the numbers and rebuilding and whatever they're doing. And generally, most really good teams will repeat or be there for two or three years, a la Warriors, a la Lakers, Bulls. So, the window for every 10 years is probably five to six teams that, that can win championships. And do you think it's fair to define, you know, a player like Russell Westbrook, um, you know, Chris Paul, those kind of guys based on a championship? It's like the argument, Bogues, with who's the best player of all time. Everyone sort of weighs things differently how they evaluate a player. You know, some people say Bill Russell's the best because he won 12 championships. And that, and that's, that's, and he's the best player on the team that won 12. And, some people say, well, then they start comparing errors and all that stuff, and then they'll go over stats and, and they weigh they weigh certain things more than they weigh other things. I don't think that championships, I think maybe if you're trying to compare one player to another, it's really close, then maybe the championship thing gets into a into account. But I think you evaluate the player versus the player. But you know, that's just sort of how I see it. I think championships are sort of important, but Look, you can be on a bad situation, bad organization. You could you could pl- you could play in the same era as the Bulls. You could play in the same era as the '80s Lakers and Celtics. You know, you can get caught in that, like a Clyde Drexler did. You know, when he had to face Detroit and he had to face Chicago and Detroit, and it could be Charles Barkley. You could be, you know, you could be uh, Malone and Stockton. You could be a Chris Paul and. You could, you could be a great player and you just, you, you don't have it. You need a lot of luck on your side. You need a good organization. You need talent and you need, you need to stay injury free. And it's a hard thing, man. And I don't really hold them against them too much. But if you're comparing a player that won zero championships versus a team, a player that was the best player on a championship team for three championships or two championships, I think I'll probably stare towards the other player. 
But, you know, Steve Nash is another thing. I think Steve Nash is the second best shooter of all time. I think that the guy is one of the best point guards of all time. You never won a championship, but he's still a great player. And you can't discount that. And, you know, sometimes it's just you don't have enough, you know. And it's not – look, I think guys like Steve Nash, Barkley, Stockton, Malone, Paul, like those guys maximized and put everything on the floor and they just didn't have enough. If – you know, the Spurs weren't the Spurs and the Lakers weren't around, Nash probably would have won one. You know, I mean, especially with those Stoudemire teams and the teams when they were loaded with, you know, with good talent that shot makers and doing what they do, but it just doesn't happen. And, you know, the same thing with, you know, that you know, you throw in teams like that, um, that Oklahoma City team when they were all together. You know, they just couldn't get by Miami, you know, Dallas, Miami, what have you. They just couldn't get by guys like that. It's just, you know, just what they just didn't have enough. You know, even that Rockets team that was loaded, like you thought that they might had enough at the at the sort of the at the top of their uh, of their drive to it, but they just didn't have enough at the end of the day. And it's just you run out of gas sometimes, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, you bring up a valid team, actually. Like the, you look at the Spurs, and let's say you look at Tony Parker's career, and then you compare it to a Russell Westbrook. If you look at it numbers wise, it's not even close, right? Westbrook's numbers are eye popping. They're way better than Tony's. Tony didn't have massive numbers for the most part. Like he had really consistent star numbers, but was never a, you know, a Russell Westbrook equivalent for numbers. And some people would argue that, you know, maybe Russell Westbrook's a better individual player, but Tony Parker gets the nod because he's got more rings. So, it is a tough one and sentiment has changed a lot lately. I think um, earlier on in the league, I think, you know, 90s, 2000s, it was all about how much you averaged. Oh, he just doesn't have the tools around him. He would win a championship if he was, you know, on Team X. Whereas now it's changed. It's like, yeah, he's averaging 30, but he must be he must be a cancer because he can't win a ring where, you know, it's somewhere in between those two. It's not, it's not those extremes. And as we we know the NBA and pro sports in general, we tend to go to the extremes, but the sentiment has surprisingly changed, something I've observed, whereas now, you know, a knock on Durant was, well, you, haven't, you don't have a championship, so then he he joins a team to win a championship, and now that's a knock because he joined a team to win a championship, so you kind of can't win. No, they're always going to find something, you know, especially like that's what talk radio, that's what ESPN, that, you know, w- with all those talk shows and stuff, that's what they live on. They, that's their lifeblood. That's why those guys make $10 million a year or $5 million a year because they find content. And, you know, I, I know he went at Stephen A. Smith and people went at Stephen A. for what he said. Look, you know, I think he was asked like, hey, you impressed with his triple-double or whatever he did that night, maybe like 35. I forgot the numbers, but like he said no or or something like, no, he didn't win or, or what have you. And then like people get, you know, a little sensitive and, huddle on the you know huddle under the collar about it. Hey, look, like if you ask somebody their opinion and they're saying, well, some people are all they do is look at stats. You know, look at our league now. It's a you know, there's still full of people who just look at stats. And if you look at what he does statistically, you know, first of all, the guy's one of the big best competitors of all time. You know, like when, when Kobe tells me that him and Rondo are the top two competitors that he ever faced, I have to look at it as the guy's one of the best competitors I've ever seen. He's changed the game as point guard. He's probably one of the most athletic point guards, if not the most athletic point guard. He changed the position, you know, as far as how it's played. You know, he's done a lot for the game. He's done a lot for that position. The guy was a, like, the guy's just a steam train and he goes at you hard as fuck. 
For, he'll give you 48 minutes of whatever he can give you. You know, before he put up those huge numbers and he had a, he had impact on winning and he got close several times. And now, you know, he, he's, he's sort of plateauing a little bit. He's hurt. He's banged up a little bit throughout the years. And he can't give you what he used to give you. But, I mean, the guy's hell of an impressive player. I mean, you know, just looking at like, you know, just looking at, at what he does. I mean, the guy puts out points. He's assists. You know, he comes at you. He's athletic. He can post up. He does all these things, you know, and I, and, and I salute him. But, you know, I just don't think that going at somebody for thinking a certain way when asked a question. But again, then, it, like I always say, I never tell a guy how to feel. If, if that's what he feels like, that's fine. Players are super sort of like combative when people are sort of going at them in the press or whatnot. You know, and, and, and that's another thing, Bogues, that we, we should talk about. You saw Michael Porter Jr. go at Scal- a Scalabrini the other night? Yeah, did he call him, did he call him Rappaport Light or something? Well, yeah, like, you know, Scal said something like, and again, this is with social media. He's like, Michael Porter Jr. is a player that will get you fired. Get your coach fired, yeah. He's, and he said that last playoffs or the playoffs before? It was a while ago. Yeah, and, you know, and what it's going to open up, it's sort of like um, the kid, the, the running back from, uh, the funny running back from Seattle, how he didn't answer the media. You know, remember he didn't answer the media that whole year, that Super Bowl year? Whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot yeah. the guy's name, but he's funny as fuck. Great player. And then, like, Westbrook stuff. I'm just here so I won't get fined. Yeah, and then he started, like, other people started doing it. And then it's just a copycat deal. And now when, you know, people are attacking media people, now you're going to see it trickle down. And look, and that's what social media people don't understand why, why it's a little fucked up. Well, it's a lot fucked up, but, you know, like it, it opens up a lot of avenues. This isn't just like some, some like Howard Cosell fucking interviews you and that's it. And it, it ends like that. And you read things in the newspaper. Things are in real time and very, people are all accessible. So now you're going to, I think you're going to start seeing these players go at these media people a lot more. I know it's been happening, but I think you're going to see it a lot more. But the whole Westbrook thing, hey, look, the guy's a hell of a player. He might, you know, he's not going to win a championship in Washington. He's getting, he's getting up there in age. It might not happen for him unless there's a buyout situation. But hey, look, the guy's had a hell of a fucking career, and he's one of one of few that left everything on the floor. And the guy competes. You might like him, you might not like him, but the guy competes his fucking ass off. And I respect him for that. And I respect for what he's done changing the position. You could say he's a winner. You could say he's not a winner and he's not a championship player. You're entitled to that opinion. But you can't say that guy doesn't fucking compete every night. That's one thing I think he could hang his hat on. He's done it. And he's a hard-nosed dude, plays hurt, you know, and and, and he goes at you and he never quits. And factor this in, he's he's 24 triple-doubles away from the all-time leader. Um, Oscar Robertson has 181 triple-doubles all-time. Westbrook's currently at 157 and then you got Magic Johnson at 138. So regardless of what you think of him and how he plays, he's going to go down as holding one of the most impressive stat lines to get in basketball and be the all-time leader of it. I'm putting me up there as as one of the the greats to play our game regardless of championships. Moving on, we have seen some buyouts happen um, and what's come from that now is a debate around small market teams complaining a star player gets bought out we don't have an opportunity to get him it's not fair you know blah 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 some numbers from the past 15 seasons there's been 39 buyout players those 39 buyout players 20 of them signed in the top 15 markets 
The other 19 signed everywhere else. So that basically tells you there is some parity. Those 39 buyout players average two games and just 10 minutes a game in the playoffs. So I don't think they're moving the needle as much as people think. We see the Lakers with Drummond. Obviously, he's a huge acquisition for them. I think you'll play more than two games in 10 minutes in the playoffs. But do you think this is just spilt milk? And if it is, what's the fix? Folks, the buyout guys, and people got to understand that they're buyout guys for a reason. If they were really helping their team, they, they would still be with that team for the most part. And these guys are bought out because either their contract doesn't fit and the d- team has to either stretch them out or get them off the books, or they just can't cut it anymore and they're at the back end of a really bad contract for the team. And, you know, they're not really helping the team. If they were really helping the team and propelling the team to win, they'd probably still be with the team. And most of these guys, like, you know, it's it's sort of like when you sign, like, these football teams or what have you, or baseball teams that sign Hall of Famers when they're, like, 41 years old and they can't help you anymore, but they're Hall of Famers. And I think that when people are signing these players – Sometimes you think of the player when they were back in their prime, like, oh, wow, they got this player. They got that player. And, and I think that like they don't understand that many of these players don't really have a huge impact on winning when especially halfway through the season or three quarters through the season um, getting picked up. I remember we picked Amari Stoudemire up and we picked up David Lee. And, you know, Amari was nice. He's a good player, but, you know, he, he helped us okay. You know, we gave up a young player, Ricky Lido, and cut him, you know, who, who I thought had a chance to be a, like a Terrence Ross type player. And sometimes you make decisions like that because you want to make runs to the playoffs. But sometimes those things, more times than not, those things don't work out. As far as the, the complaining with the teams, look, that's, that's life. You know, that's life. That's, that's how the league's been forever. It's how it is in free agency. It's how it is, you know, in buyout situations. It, it's, that's how it is. Te- players want to play for good teams that have a chance to win. I don't care if it's a big market, small market. You want to complain all the fuck you want. It, you know, do your fucking job better. You know, get your fucking team better. And that's just, that's the situation. That's always going to be the situation. Get your team in position to win. Worry about player development. Worry about evaluating talent. Get your team better. And that's always how it's going to be. Now, I'll tell you what the league did do a good job of getting rid of a rule. Forget the buyout. The buyout is what it is. You know, that this thing's been collectively bogged, by the way. If they really complained, uh, had a problem with it, they should have taken it out of their last CBA. The big rule that I, you, you probably knew about when, I, I, you know, you could trade a player. The player can get bought out from the team that they uh, they play, that you trade them to. So that team buys them out. They wait like a 21-day period and then they come back to you. They used to do that all the time. And like that was the biggest bullshit I've ever seen. And I'm glad that they got rid of that rule. The buyout thing, I don't really, it doesn't really get me upset. You know, I don't care if I'm a big market, small market. It just is what it is. That rule is one of the most outrageous things I've ever seen. It happened like four or five times. You got to wait a season now, don't you? It used to be like 21 days. And now I think it's a year. You got to wait like a calendar year. You know what's funny about that? There's a, there's a workaround though. It happened to me. So when I got traded from Golden State to Dallas, I was in that situation. So then I moved on from Dallas. They were going to buy me out, but then they ended up finding a trade to get something back. New Orleans Noel. So traded me to Philly. I got bought out by Philly. I could then legally still sign with Golden State. But they were, they were obviously loaded with bigs at that point because they had Zaza and um, JaVale. But because I'd gone to a second team, 
it then that was the workaround. It then allowed me. I, that rule was then nixed because it wasn't the last team I was with. If that, does that make sense? So, if Dallas, mm-hmm. if, if Dallas had bought me out, I couldn't sign with Golden State because of that rule. Because they traded me to another team, they bought me out. I, I then technically could have, and there was a bit of buzz around it. But they they were stacked like they, you know, David West, Saza, Javale. Like I wouldn't have fit in there and got minutes, and it wouldn't have made sense. They needed a guard at that point anyway. But there is a workaround, and teams will always figure it out. But I, I like that. I like the rule because I think it is it is kind of hilarious that you could have back in the day <laughs> just been like, "Hey man, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna buy, it. we're gonna trade you and get you bought out, and then come back." I want to say it was. Gary Payton, when I was at Boston, that we did that too. The two rules that I think were the coolest rules ever was the rule, rule that you could trade a guy, already say that, hey, look, we're trading you to Atlanta, but Atlanta, you know, you just have to say that, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to report. They're going to buy you out, you know, because they usually were the throw in. They probably like did it for like player X and then two second rounders or some young player that they really wanted. They didn't really want them so they can come back. The second thing that I thought was fucking hilarious is they allowed players that didn't retire yet that was on your sheet to make the money work. We were trying to trade for Baron Davis when I was in Boston and we were trying to put him with like Paul Pierce. This is before they got Garnett and those guys. And I remember like Baron was either in New Orleans or Charlotte. I forgot what. And and he wanted out. And we were going to, we had Rashawn McLeod who played St. John's and Duke played in the NBA for a while. We had him on our sheet. He was retired, but not officially retired. We were going to get, because we were short on the money, because you have to come within like 25% of the, of the, you know, the money has to, both teams has to take and receive up to 25% close, you know, in closeness as far as the deals. So we were going to like sign Rashawn McLeod, give him like four or five million bucks. Just to be active in this trade, he would never play for the team. He would just like make the money work and and give him this money. I think Sean Bradley did that in the I want to say the Jason Kidd trade where he had a they I think Dallas traded him to New Jersey. He technically had to like work out for a month before he retired again, and he basically like showed up at like eight a.m. and did like you know fucking Mike and Drill for twenty minutes and then left, but. Like they were allowed you to do that if you weren't officially retired and that was the last team you played for and they could actively give you money to make a trade work, send you to the team. You never really play, practice anything and you basically get a free payday. So I thought that was a pretty interesting rule. I happened to a former teammate of mine, Luke Ridnow. I don't know if you remember, but oh, back really? in, yeah, back in, I think it was 2015, he got traded four times in the span of six days. And <laughs> after like the first one, he was like calling the teams. The agent was just basically saying like, hey, like I'm retired. I'm going to retire. I'm not, I'm not going to play again. And they were like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. And he ends up, he ends up retiring. So this all went down June, 2015, early to mid June. He gets traded six times. And then on um, June the 22nd, he announced his retirement. So yeah, it does happen. You're right. And and he, he was one of the extreme cases, but yeah, teams will do that. They'll do whatever they can and make, make salaries match sometimes. They'll throw in guys that they've drafted, you know, 10 years ago sometimes into deals to try and make things work and just get a, a heartbeat in that trade. And that's just a part of the, as we said, that that's the business and that's just the show you got to deal with what do you think about buyouts though like what do you think 
Like, what, what's your thoughts? Oh, I'm kind of, I've been part of them. Um, look, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan. The irony of the small markets, by the way, complaining about buyouts is where do most of the buyout guys come from? Fucking small markets. So it's just like <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. You ever really see, you know, the Knicks or the Lakers buying a guy out? Because guys will still want to at least be in that city if their team sucks, right? And have a have a good time, good weather, whatever. I get the buyout thing. If you're if you're going young, OKC, Al Horford, like we're not gonna play you anyway. See you later. Mm-hmm. I get it if the guy's being a dickhead. That makes sense to me. Like, but if he's a good guy in your locker room and not causing any issues and just trying to be professional, I don't think it's that good. I, I think it's just bad from uh, from an optics point of view, but if the guy's being poisonous and like, get me out of here, I'm going to do whatever I can to get out of here. You're going to hate me. Like, okay, you kind of, you kind of stuck. You either try to trade him, deadline passes, and you buy him out. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of it. I'm more like, hey, I signed this contract. It's for whatever terms. I'm going to do my best for those terms, and then beyond that, we can figure it out. If I do want to get traded during that contract, I'll ask. And if I don't, I still have to be professional. And it goes on our conversation last week. Like, you can, you can ask for a trade request in private do all those things, they can say no, and then you got to respect that and still go and earn your living. It's the same as, you know, working at a at an office and wanting to join a rival office um, and then you've still got your six weeks notice, you still want to try and finish on the right terms. I mean, most people kind of wouldn't or they'd pro- kind of just gas it, but um, yeah, I'm more of, if I sign that, I'm going to try to do it the best I can, even though I'm pissed off at the situation and want to get out of there, you still got to treat it professionally and like you said, you're still getting those zeros in your bank account, so you got to handle it the right way. But we'll move on to Kelly Oubre. So this is an interesting one only because I, I got some word from behind the scenes there. He was basically asked after the trade deadline, he was rumored to be traded from every NBA, to every NBA team, to China, to Australia. He was rumored in everything. Um, he was all over the place. And having a good authority, they had an offer actually for for um, Lonzo Ball and I think a throw-in f- and a pick for Ubre and, and the Warriors turned it down funnily enough but I thought that was a pretty good deal to shed some salary and get a, get a pick back but anyway he was asked if he'd come back next season with the Warriors he, he basically was pretty nonchalant I can't predict the future only God can all that kind of stuff and then they followed up saying would you you know would you be happy coming back next season if Clay's healthy would you come back to a bench role and the conversation kind of turned it, it went pretty it was clear his tone, the way he was talking, uh, was not pretty, not very positive to coming off the bench, and, and, and said something along the way of I'm, "I'm more than a bench player. I wouldn't come off the bench." Now, I'm not going to name the player, but I've heard the Warriors players didn't take too lightly to those comments. They basically had, had, had made him made it pretty known that Andre Iguodala, a Finals MVP, was okay with coming off the bench, but we have Kelly Motherfucking Ubre who won't. Um, and that was that was not directed behind his back. That was to his face by you know an unnamed player in that locker room who was not too happy with those comments. But it was pretty interesting just because that's a that's a group that still has NBA champions champions on it. So as a young fellow like Ubre, I, I like the confidence. You have to kind of be your own fan. But I think that locker room is the wrong environment to make those kind of comments. What do you think? The competitor in you, as far as a player, of course you're you're not going to be exactly happy about it. And, you know, you have to be sort of cliche-ish, you know, I know everybody likes the truth, especially us, but, you know, with that stuff, people can get sensitive, especially in a situation where they've won championships, you know, in the past, like, and have respect for the people that are there. Just saying, hey, look, whatever you need, you know, even if you don't think it, look, how many times have we seen players do that? where they just give you a bullshit, you know, yeah, I'll do whatever, you know, whatever it takes. And you know, like in the back of their head, they're like, fuck, no, I'm not going to do whatever I take. I'm out of here. 
you know, and, and that's sort of like, that's sort of what I'm saying, seeing with this, like, he should have probably just like took a knee on it and said, all right, you know, you're right. I'll do whatever is needed, man. I just love it here. You know, just sort of say what you need to say. Because, I mean, players could get, you know, once you fuck that locker room up and they start looking at you like sideways, like you're not really with us, especially like they've had success in the past, huge success. You know, it's not a great thing and it could fuck you up with the team. And, you know, look, he's trying to find his footing. He's 25 years old. You know, he's been, he was at an okay situation in Washington. Then he goes to Phoenix and now he's here, you know, and, you know, he could be working on his fourth team already in his young career and he's got a stick at some point. Now he's okay. He averages what, like 12 a game for his career. You know, he's an okay player. He could get hot once in a while. He's not consistent. He's wild. But like, I think with comments like that, plus being wild, it's not really going to help you too much to find your footing and trying to like, you know, trying to like sort of put some, you know, put some real career years into a team. You know, you're probably going to be looking for a new situation. It's just not, not really a cool deal, but hey, look, everybody's got to sort of learn themselves, man. Well, you factor that in with not being the most unselfish player on the floor. Oh, shit. You know, he's never averaged over 1.5 assists in his career in any season. And he's he's not essentially a, a Tony Snell where he's catch and shoot. You know, he's a guy that usually on most teams, even with the Warriors, his usage is pretty high. And that's a pretty alarming statistic. I think that would be known in that locker room too. Like this dude's not going to pass it. So, if we give it up to him... He's not really a swing-swing guy. He's not really a guy that's going to find the open man. You know, last season, 14.8 field goal attempts for one point uh, to 1.5 assists. That's pretty alarming as well. So, I think he has some selfishness in his game. He is young. He needs to work it out. I do like him though. Like, I think he's he's got all the tools to be a really good player, but I think a lot of it's just going to be that mental makeup of, of can you accept the role? Like, if you're now a team that was looking at Kelly Oubre, um, to bring you into a championship mix, let's think. Okay, Lakers, KCP goes. They don't sign Schroeder. They've got they've got you know ten to twelve million dollars in cap space, fifteen million dollars, whatever. And he's on their list. And you see those comments, and you're like, okay, so we can't bring him off the bench if you know if that's what we decide to do as our sixth man punch. You know, you've you've basically alienated some teams that were probably interested in you and. I mean, I like the honesty, but at the same time, I think if I was Ubre and had an opportunity to be on a championship winning team with Clay Healthy and a team that could push for the conference finals potentially in a year or two, I would embrace that um, Iguodala role for a year or two, you know, take my lumps minutes wise. I mean, Andre still played 30 minutes a game for us and got a finals MVP and look what he's earning right now from Miami based on that. Like he may, he signed a really big deal there. Um, so you can still have a lot of positives from it, but that's just kind of the way the league's the league's going. And I guess can't argue too much of him being his biggest fan. Yeah, if I was talking to him, if he was on a team I was with, and and I was in his ear, I'd say, "Look, man, you got to study Jordan Clarkson. You got to study Lou Williams. How they make impacts off you know off the bench. How they get starters minutes, but they play off the bench, and they they really have a huge impact in winning." And that's what you have to be, you know. And then, like, what you do is you you help them win. Help Golden State win because that's why they got you there. You know, that's the only reason why they brought him in. I don't think they should have brought him in. I think they should have lost this year and lost big, got their pick, got Minnesota's pick either this year or next year, and then once Clay comes back, roll with it. But they, they thought, look, 
we're not doing this. We got this new arena. We got to show people we're still in it. So we, we, we need to get this kid. And, and, and they identified him as a kid that they that Ubre as someone who could help them. So they got him in for, to play that role, to put up points, to do what he does. And that's what he did. So he's got to show that he could have an impact on winning, maybe get them to the play-in round, maybe win the play-in play round. Who knows? And then, like, show people that he could really elevate his game and then get paid on his next situation, you know, or, or get traded in the next situation. Who knows? But taking it this way really doesn't help his situation, in my opinion. Yeah, and my point would be not in that, not in that locker room, not with those guys. Maybe on a, on a team like Washington or some of the previous teams he's been on, a Phoenix maybe last season. But that's not the right locker yeah. room to do that. They've got some guys that will call you out on your bullshit, and they have. But one last thing NBA-wise – we spoke about bad uh, flights uh, about five, six podcasts ago about our worst experiences flying. So, the Utah Jazz, for those that aren't familiar, their plane almost went down completely. They, um, I spoke to Joe Ingles about it briefly and they flew into a mass, mass flock of birds like, you know, in the hundreds probably and um, it basically screwed one of their engines up. It made a loud bang. People reported to see fire coming out of the engine immediately and they plummeted. Um, they, they, they banked on one side because obviously the plane, the power ratio was all messed up from, from the engines and Joe told me that they were on uh, above Salt Lake at the time, big lake obviously in, in Utah. And at one point, the pilot had mentioned that they might have to brace to land on the water. So, you know, I texted him straight away and, and asked how he was. And he said he said he was pretty shaken up. He said a lot of guys were shaken up. There was a lot of guys kind of essentially bracing for impact. Um, they were told to fasten their seatbelts, get to brace positions and all that kind of stuff. And pretty scary time, but great news that everything landed well. And you just, it's a testament to how good pilots are these days and all the training they do to land a plane on one engine of that size is pretty impressive. And they got it to, to safe ground and um, obviously there's some ramifications now. There's, there's, you know, Donovan Mitchell, I think it was, that didn't want to fly the next night and rightfully so, man. I mean, I, I, you know, I'd be very, very scared getting on a plane the next day after that. I'd, I'd probably need a week or so to kind of get my shit together mentally after thinking that that was going to be the last time, you know, you, you take a breath on on this earth. But um, thankfully, everything is well for them. We finished on a positive note, but but scary times and, and you, you got to remember what professional athletes at times go through their risk is heightened just with the amount of flights they're taking on a daily basis right yeah you never know man you, you never know it like you, you just take these routine flights that you think that are you know pretty easy and bang like something like that could happen it, it's such a you know it's a, such a scary thing to even think about and you know so many teams traveling on a daily basis and you know and through all pro sports and it's just like, you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're getting your drink and you're just sort of chilling and all of a sudden something like that happens. Like, yeah, it's a it's a rough deal, man. I, I couldn't even imagine what they were going through in that little time. It's That's some scary shit. Yeah, it is. It is. And that, like I've said, I mean, I've been through two of those and um, they've basically scarred me for life. You know, like I said, I get the slightest bit of turbulence. I'm tightening that belt and <laughs> looking for the stewardess or the flight attendants <laughs> looking at their face. Because you can usually tell a lot by, by by the facial expressions they make once they get off that phone from the pilot. So, yeah, hopefully everything goes well for them the rest of the season. But impressive effort by that pilot to land it. We'll finish on some NBL real quick. There was some, I don't know if you saw it, but we mentioned the Mitch Creek thing a couple of weeks ago. He got stood down. There's an assault 
allegation pending on um, on him. The court date has been pushed now. I think it's I think it's April or May, so it would have been after the season. So uh, an interesting decision by the NBL, Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. Uh, we can't really get an answer on whose decision it was exactly, but he's been granted to play again. He played last week, his first game back. He was away from the team for two weeks or three weeks. It's caused an uproar over here. Obviously, um, you know, it, it was during the week, International Women's Day, I believe, or the week after, so that wasn't a good look. He played his first game in Illawarra, was booed every time he touched the ball. I've got mixed feelings on this. I was a, an innocent or proven guilty in the court of law um, on all aspects, but the more I look at this, I think it's it's probably hurt both parties and obviously the, the, the woman involved with that goes without saying that you know if it's if it's proven to be her allegations are proven then it's, it's horrendous what's happened but it doesn't look good for the nbl it doesn't look good for mitch creek it doesn't look good for southeast melbourne phoenix because they've basically reneged on their own decision um that's got people fired up and then now people are saying that you've got a potential abuser playing professional sports so i mean it's a tough one for me like i said i, I'm, I believe in innocence or proven guilty because there, there can be instances where people make false allegations just for your point of view pro the NRL, which is the rugby league up in Sydney, they have a, a stand-down policy if charged, um, which you know a lot of those football players were getting in insane amounts of trouble every week. There was someone doing something stupid. There was <laughs> you know group sex issues. There was you know whatever it was, violence at bars, getting in fights, physical assault, punching people. So they put in a stand-down policy. Basically, as soon as you have a charge pending, you're you're stood down from playing and training. You're paid, you're paid along that time to your court date and then it takes the optics out of, of the media and people saying that you shouldn't be playing because you're a potential abuser or whatever, right? I think this is a similar situation. Um, I think, I believe Mitch was paid. I'm not too positive, but I, I assume he'd be paid not to play, but it just goes back to the optics of it. I think it's it's just bad that they've gone against their own decision and, and it's yeah, it's, it's been a pretty big point of debate here for the NBL. But um, I mean, how do you see how do you see this all? Are you an innocent or proven guilty guy? Are you a guy that says, okay, no, it's fair enough to, to stand a guy down until their court date? Um, and then on the other side, what happens, you know, devil's advocate, if 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 Mitch is proven innocent and, you know, he's he's now tarred, um, you know, with this with this feather. The big thing here is going against whatever you decided to do. You know, if you're going to go against, it doesn't make you look good. It makes you look indecisive. Whatever you do to deal with this, you have to be decisive with it. You have to make your decision and going forward, you have to follow it. The only problem that I have with it, and it's a despicable thing if it happened. You know, I have, I, I have very little to no sympathy for anybody who, who's sort of involved in this, involved if they're guilty. And I am an innocent until proven guilty guy. The problem with it, though, Bogues, is this. What if it is a false allegation? And maybe not this allegation, but maybe some other allegation for another player. So it, it sets a standard of if, if you're going to, like, not play a player based on any allegation, then any allegation could come up and then they have to sit out until it's probably- It has to be a allegation, though, here. Has to be you have to be formally charged by the police. Yep. Yeah. So if you're formally charged, but say it's a false allegation mm -hmm. in I the hear. sense that it yep. didn't happen- and then you got to sit. And if that's the deal, like there's no good, there's no decent way to deal with this. Now, the, the moral thing would be he's not playing, but it opens up a Pandora's box of like, if, you know, if I'm a, a, ra a rabid fan and I'm like, and I'm a, you know, whatever, I could set, set situations up. Or you're a sports better. Yeah. Or you bet, or you bet that's on That's the problem yeah, I have. But look, the moral thing of it, folks, if it happens, I'd fucking ban them. I'd ban them for life if it happened. Like, but 
you, like that's the thing. You can't. No one knows because the court case isn't there yet. They're letting him play, which probably isn't the best thing ever to do. I, I would probably not play him. If you want to pay him, that's up to you. But it, I probably wouldn't play him because it just puts everybody in a bad spot. It puts him in a bad spot. It puts the organization in a bad spot. It you know it embarrasses the the person who who has the allegation against him. Where look like you know if this guy might have done this and he's still playing and is like so it's probably best for everybody that doesn't play, but it's uh it's not an easy situation. It's not an easy thing to just say, all right, this is the right thing because there's a lot of other there's a lot of other things to talk about with it. But whatever you come up with, if you're going against what you came up with originally, it doesn't make you look good. Yeah, and I don't know why that happened. I, I, you know, there's there's people that have rumored maybe maybe there isn't a case in the NBL. Know it? Who knows? Once again, we're not condoning any of the actions. We want you know your, your thoughts. Obviously, go out to the the female involved if if what's alleged happened Without is absolutely, absolutely putrid. So you don't want to muddy the waters by people saying, "Oh, you're condoning this." By blah blah. blah. No, we're not. We're we're discussing this. As most people should, I think, yeah, I think the right decision is, is probably the first decision that you make. You can't go against your own your own kind of ruling. And as, as harsh as it is, I think standing down um, with pay, um, you know, that, that could potentially be that something the NBL might need to introduce. But like you said, there's also the flip side. If he, if he now goes to court, you know, he's going to miss the Olympics regardless of the decision, right? So, if he's innocent, he's going to miss the Olympics most likely because he's going to miss, miss the lead up and the camps and all that kind of stuff, right? Which most people say, well, yeah. if, well if he's done if he's done what, what's alleged, it's unlucky. I'm like 100% agree with you, right? But devil's advocate is, okay, if he's at the end of this court case is proven um, innocent, he's still tarred with that label for, for most people. And, and we all know how it goes. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a smaller article and he got off and he's not guilty and whatever. So then there's that argument of now can he, you know, for being stood down, can he now go after the NBL or a club? And I think where the NBL has got themselves in trouble, I don't believe they have a physical protocol guideline outline for these circumstances. That could hurt them, you know, and I think maybe that's, played a part into why the NBL has said, you know what, we're going to let you play. But they've also noted that he won't be doing any community events. He won't be doing any of that stuff. So, it's just game training and that's it. Yeah. But I think maybe the NBL, you know, this is, I'm just on a hunch that, that maybe his lawyers reached out to the NBL and said, can we have the document that that pertains to how you guys handle this, similar to the rugby league, the stand down, can we have your policy? And I, I think potentially the NBL have probably gone, oh shit, we don't have one. Well, you know, there's there's potential here for us to come back at you guys if he's if he's uh, you know not guilty, and I think they've probably just gone. Whoops, we don't we don't want to we don't want to be involved with that. And like you said, morally, not the right decision, but I think it's come down to money and and what could be. And I think that's why I've made a decision. But like I said, Pro and I aren't condoning anything that's happened. Um, we don't know. Oh, we don't. Fine. We don't know. We don't know what's happened. So for any of you idiots no. out there that are going to either grab a cl- clip of this and, and say we can, don't, we, we don't. We st- strongly against any kinds of violence, as Pro said with the KD DMs, any threats of violence, um, assault, sexual assault, treating women badly, treating men badly, just treating human beings badly. Rogue Bogues is on record to say treating human beings badly is a bad thing. We're against it, strongly against it. Um, but. There is there is going to be some interesting times in the next couple of months with that, but I thought it was interesting. And, and Mitch, like I said, he, they they have their first home game, so it'll be interesting to see if if the home fans um, boo him. So I'll be interested to see how 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 all that goes because it's just not it's not good right now, man. And it's 
Um, whether you agree with innocence or proven guilty, whether you disagree with it, whatever, having him out on the court right now, watching a game on TV and having him blatantly booed every time he touches the ball, don't get me wrong, we're not feeling bad for Mitch here if, he, if he's done what he has done, but for an average fan tuning in, it's not a good look neither. And like you said, to, to renege on, on, on your initial decision is not great, in my opinion, with the NBL. Yeah, and, and as a league itself in itself – you got to take after some of these other leagues that have these huge operational manuals as far as the league's concerned and bylaws. And you have to, you have to dot every I, you got to cross every T and you have to have every situation, you know, collectively bargained and written down on paper. So when things come up, you can deal with them swiftly. You could have a position of power on this and you could sort of have the perception of being on top of these things. But now when you're backtracking, you don't really, if, if it is true, they don't really have, you know, they don't really have bylaws for this. It just makes you look weak, unorganized, and just bad from the top down. And then that, that could just sort of snowball. You, you want to be ahead of these things and know how to deal with them, come from a position of strength and show them that you're in charge of things. And instead of in Bottom and Bailey's fucking circus when you don't really know and you don't have, you know, and you're going against things and, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't act swiftly on these things. It just makes you look bad. And as I've said earlier, you've got to have some organizational structure in your league, the NBL. So this is one of those opportunities for you to fix this in the off season and put together some sort of protocol, some guidelines, some structures so these things can be handled better. And I've been a big um, advocate for that in previous podcasts. Run us through your fact or fake news, bro. All right. First off, fact or fake news? Does Paul Pierce buy an Instagram for Dummies book in the next 24 hours from now? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, if one existed, it would be fact. And on top of that, you'd uh, highly recommend a masterclass on it, a YouTube video tutorial, an ABC how to do fact. I say fake news i say his his agent former agent or or marketing director will be getting the book for him and be will be sort of outlining the important parts of it and probably erasing it from his phone so that's that's what probably i would think on that a picture book of course i would say audible.com <laughs> i'm going to give i'm going to like cut, i'm going to cut it in the middle i'm going to give it audible.com so okay. that's it we'll look out for that folks we talked about tony snell Shooting 57 from three. Will he finish the season over 50% from the three-point line? Oh, man, I need to do my numbers. I'm not great at analytics and stats. I need to call. Should have got Harrell Labos Volgaris on the pod for this because I'm trying to figure out what he needs to go for the next whatever. He wants eight Bitcoin. I don't think that, I think it's a little pricey for us <laughs> right now. I don't think we're operating on that on our budget. That's my guy, the Bitcoin guru, but I'll have to figure out, oh, so you'd have to figure out how many, let's, let's say 30 games left, what percentage would he need to shoot to get under 50? I assume it'd be in the 40s somewhere. I think he'll finish above 50. I think he's a uh, fact. He'll finish above 50%. He takes good shots, like we said, and he doesn't take a lot of bad ones, so I'll go fact. I'm picturing the scene from Hangover where the uh, the the dude with the uh, with the beard with the uh, with the satchel is all the uh, when he's trying to go down like Rain Man and all the uh, all the stats and stuff are going around him like the uh, the scene from the A Beautiful Mind. Oh yeah, in the casino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm picturing you doing that while you're trying to figure this out. Oh, it's much worse than that. Much worse than that. I'm bad at math. I would say he will. The, based on I'm saying it's fact. Uh, based on how many he shoots. 
and how he shoots him, I figure he's going to finish over 50% from the three. I'll say it's fact. Beautiful. Hopefully, we, we don't have to agree on all three here. All right. Last one. NBA will dra- a dramatically change buyout protocol to even the playing field for big and small market teams by the next collective bargaining agreement. Fake news because I don't I don't know what what, what are you going to change like it's can be a restriction of trade to an extent as I said earlier if you've got a guy being a dickhead in the locker room you got to move him on what do you do just just tell him to stay home so I think fake news I don't think it's I don't think it's that big of a deal those numbers that I uh, mentioned earlier you know past fifteen seasons thirty nine buyout players average two games and just ten minutes in the playoffs and then twenty of them signed top fifteen the other nineteen signed elsewhere. I think it's pretty okay in my opinion. I don't, I don't think it's moving the needle. So fake news. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fake news. I don't think they're, you know, I don't think it's a big enough deal for them. It doesn't really impact too many people except those, you know, the people who lose out on players that are going to complain. As long as LeBron James or one of those get power brokers really, you know, complains about it, I don't think. I don't think anyone, you know, a power broker team or or one of your big markets. I don't think they're going to really care about it. So. Um, I think it's fine the way it is. I just think you're always going to have people argue and complain about things when things don't go their way. So, yeah, I, I say it's fake news. I don't think it's going to happen. I think your chihuahua agrees as well. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, you know, it's pretty shitty fucking fact of fake news. I might I might fire myself and hire the person who complained about me swearing. Maybe they could <laughs> come up with a fucking list. No, your chihuahua's barking. I thought um, your dog, your dog in the background. I thought they agreed with the, uh, yeah, the fact of fake I got, news. That's actually my son. Yeah, that's actually my son. Maybe he'll come up with them next time. <laughs> okay. Q&As, we're going to plow through these real quick. First one, AB and Pro, my partner and I bought tickets when you were in LA and you were traded four days before the game, which bummed us out, but we were lucky to see you play in Adelaide for the Kings, so thanks for coming back. My question for both of you is, when being traded, do you start to lose confidence in what you do or do you just move on and continue to play your game? Plus, do you believe if you had not broke your leg at the Cavs, you guys could have had a real chance to win the title. First off, no on your last question. I was not moving the needle for the Cavs, even if I was healthy. I was at best probably five to 10 minutes a night for them with what they were trying to do. And in the series against Golden State specifically, I wouldn't have really played much minutes because they went small a lot. So to answer your question about that, no, the Golden State Warriors still would have won that championship. As far as losing confidence because you were traded, I assume that's what you're asking. Look, there's, there's two ways to look at a trade. One is, yeah, the team that you have... Um, doesn't want you. Uh, the team that you have sucks, so they're trying to share the salary. The team that you have, in my case, had to make room for Kevin Durant, so I couldn't be too pissed off about that because I'm not an idiot, and I would have made, I would have traded myself to have a chance to get Kevin Durant, <laughs> if that makes sense. And then you can look at it on the other side. Someone else wants me. Another team is making a move for me. Another team has gave up some of their players for me. So look, there can be a bit of a confidence issue if you've been bounced like four or five times in a few years, it can kind of get, not even from a confidence point of view, just moving houses, you got a wife and kids, it just takes a toll mentally and that can hurt your confidence a little bit. The other thing is, as pros mentioned, moving into a team mid-season is, is sometimes detrimental to to fitting in and playing your role because you got to learn a new system, you might not be in favor with the coach, whatever it is. So it can be good, it can be bad. It's just some shit you got to deal with in the NBA. It's part of it's part of what we sign up for. It's a part of why we're paid a lot of money. Is that you can be traded and be told, "Hey, hey, Bogut, you got to be from from Dallas to Cleveland in forty eight hours, or you're getting fine. Get on a plane, and we'll see you in a couple of days, and then get ready to play in three days." And that's just the reality of the business, right, bro? Yeah, I think that you have to figure out really early what kind of pro you're going to be, and I think it, it really depends on how you're wired. If you're wired 
Like it doesn't bother, things don't bother you. You're going to stay tunnel vision. You're going to stay focused on things. I mean, there's always going to be life things like kids and, and, and wife or, or a girlfriend or family that you have to move. Yeah. You have to deal with that. That's, that's, that is what it is. There, you have no idea how, you know, how sort of sensitive players are sometimes when trades come up. You think that, that people are like really strong and, and tough and, you know, and then they get traded and, and it's sort of like, it hits them like a truck because for a lot of these players, they've never dealt with adversity before. So it's one of those things where you have it, it you know, it's going to come get you at some point. You're going to get traded or waived at some point, or you're going to leave a team. So you have to always deal with it. If you do get traded, you have to just, again, stay in your routine, stay with you, what got you there as far as your daily training regiment, your daily your regiments. And you got to stay what what got you there. You, you got to understand why you're good in this league. And you got to continue to do that regardless if you get traded once, 20 times, zero times. But some people just aren't wired for it. You think because the, stat, the deck's been stacked in their favor their whole career, once they deal with one trade, it could ruin a career. If you're, if you're not tough... And look, everybody's tough when they're on Instagram and they're in layup lines or they're tweeting shit out during the summer. But when when all that shit's gone, you got to look yourself in the mirror. You know how tough you are or how not tough you are. You'll be surprised at some of the people that you think are really tough in this league that aren't really tough at all once they get hit with adversity for the first time. So it's just how you're wired and you got to stay just like anything else. If I was... You know, especially in times like now where, you know, job, you know, people losing jobs and things, you got to stay focused on what's important. And the same thing as an NBA player, you got to stay focused on what got you there. Continue to do that. It doesn't matter if it's in Golden State, Minnesota, Detroit, Boston, Dallas, Denver, whatever. You got to continue to do what you do, what got you there. But yeah, it could definitely impact people because they can't take adversity. They've never dealt with it before. They were high school American, college all American, lottery pick. Everything's going their way. They they never had a challenge for a play up uh, uh, minutes in their or, or shots in their life. Everything was run to them, and then they get to the league, and it's a completely different story, and they can't deal with it. So it, it it's it, it definitely challenges people, you know. Um, but if you really want to be good at this, you got to focus. You can't really worry about that. You're it's out of your control. The team's either going to trade you or they're not going to trade you. And it will come get you at some point. Like I said, it, it, you know, not, you know, there's probably 95% of the players in that league don't stay with, you know, one organization more than six, six or seven years. They're moving at some point. So you just got to deal with it and move on. Especially these days, yeah, you're moving a lot. So thank you, Matthew Halambi from Adelaide. Next one. Hey, mate, one for you and Pro, with both of you being parents, it's hard to watch the kids play basketball, if they play ball, that is, to stop yourselves from trying to run through X's and O's during or after games, seeing how both of you have well above average basketball minds. Or are you able to take a step back and just let them run around and play like delinquents? Keep up the good work. Still waiting for the go-ahead work for your Bo Morris joint bogues for the electrical work. He's obviously an electrician. So yeah, if I get the permit to build a house ever, we'll see how we go. And that's that's Andrew and Officer. I'll go this one first. I mean, look, it depends what age your kids are. You don't mention what age they are. I think at a young age, you let them be delinquents. Um, I think there's enough structure in life throughout, you know, teenage years and school and then post-teenage years and adolescence that 
I think letting kids be kids um, at an early age is very important. So, don't helicopter them. I think you can give them some guidelines and some techniques. You know, for instance, if they're shooting, you know, just keep your elbow in, focus on that. But don't go out there trying to be Phil Jackson with kids that are under 10 years old, in my opinion. I think, you know, once they start getting more towards structured stuff, probably under 12s, maybe 14s, you can get a bit more into the X's and O's. But Look, I think the X's and O's are important. It's important to learn the game, but I think these days it's more important to learn how to read and react than just play basketball because that's the way the game's going. All the kids that I know that played for a team, Andrew Gaze's all team pro, um, the Melbourne Tigers, they they ran the shuffle offense from the, the time they were 11 years old to, to the time they finished with their club at 18, 19. And what I've noticed from most of those players is they, they can't read and react because they're so structured and regimented with their junior upbringing that all of a sudden a guy goes ISO, where do I go? I'm on the weak side. This happens. What do I do? They don't know where to go because everything was tailored towards the shuffle. It was a regimented robotic offense and I think that then hurts you if you leave that and I I equate that towards getting young kids at a young age to do these fancy X's and O's that you see on TV. Now, technique, good habits, doing things the right way, you can teach that from day one but as far as overloading a kid at seven, eight years old with all that stuff, I think it's a no-go zone. You. First of all, was Andrew Gaze the guy who sent you the message about I swear too much, by the way? It might have been. It might have been a burner account. Possibly. God damn. What would they call it? Seton Hall Greyhead Assassin at AOL.com? <laughs> the Grey Mamba. Yeah, the Grey Mamba. All right. Well, with this, I'm very non-competitive. I don't really care about wins and losses. I, I, I never did when I was in the NBA. I never did. You know, it didn't really bother me either way. With my son, my son, son's very young. My daughter's eight. My son uh, hasn't even turned three yet. But I, I've already sort of played this through my head. If they want to have fun and run around, I'm just going to let them do that. If they come to me at some point and say, you know, Dad, I'm, I'm serious about this. I want to get better or whatever. Then I'd, I'd sort of be a little more serious if they were a little older. What I would teach them to do is always be respectful of their coach, of their teammates. Work hard. Put some time into it. You know, and just sort of work, you know, they don't have to be good at it. They could just run around and they could have fun. doesn't matter if they score two points, 20 points, get one play called to them, a thousand plays called to them. It doesn't matter. If they want to be serious about it and they want to take it serious, I'll, I'll put some time in. Only if they show that they're serious about it. And then, yeah, you get a little more serious. I, I don't really care about X's and O's. I think it's the most overrated part of the game. The game is way overcoached and way undertaught. And you got to teach players fundamentals of how to be good at whatever they're trying to do, shooting, layups, ball handling, defense, what have you. And then you put them in as many competitive situations that you can, two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, and let them play and, and let them figure some stuff out. And the best thing that could happen to your kids is to get the shit kicked out of them, not physically, just sort of on a on court and make mistakes and be bad. And figure some things out and have to dust themselves off, pick themselves up, and then have to do it again. And then until they do some things right. And I think it's a lot more important to actually know sort of how to compete, how to play, how to play with a team, how to react to things, how to think, rather than having some coach that's going to run 500 plays that ain't going to teach you shit. That's just going to teach you how to be in a place and a spot on the floor. And And I think that that's... That's why you become a robot. And you see a lot of those players in the NBA that come from college programs that only run systems and they don't really teach them how to play. We, 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 uh, there's this 
uh, game that I learned at a, a camp called Snow Valley Basketball Camp in Santa Barbara, California, one of the best teaching camps I've ever uh, in the world, actually. And they, they play this game called Cutthroat, and it's four and four. And they have all these rules about how many passes you got to make and cutting. You got to cut after you, you got to move after you pass. And you got to thank, if you score a basket, you got to thank the guy who passed you, your teammate. There's a lot of great rules, but it teaches players, uh, kids how to think and how to play and how to like just play. No plays, nothing. It just has some rules where everybody's got to touch it. You got to square up when you catch it. You got to thank the passer when you score. You got to talk. You got to do all these things. And it just teaches. I think it's important to teach kids how to play. And don't worry about the X's and O's. If they if they want to be serious when they're 15, 16, 14, whatever, then that's another conversation for another day. When they're young, just let them have fun. Let them compete. As long as they're a good teammate, they respect the game, and they respect the coach, then you're, you're good to go. Yeah, I agree. And that's there's also a beauty of winning and losing and winning the right way, losing the right way. Um, we've spoken about that at length, so we won't go into that. But yeah, let, let the kids be kids. It's, you know, not, even outside of sport, let them get dirty. Let them go do jump in puddle. Let them go do whatever, man. Like you tell them enough times to stop jumping off the couch and, and they're going to hurt themselves. Eventually, you got to let them hurt themselves to learn, right? Like there's no other way they're going to learn. So, you know, take the bubble wrap off parents, take the um, helicopter parents away and let your kids be kids. There'll be plenty of time to be a stress head adult like we are. So thanks for that question, Andrew. Moving on, Andrew and Pro, really loving you guys' podcast, super raw and honest and love both your insights into the basketball world. I've played college ball in the States along with a few years pro in Europe. Question for you, Andrew, how did you balance wanting to be aggressive to score yourself with getting your teammates open and sharing the ball? I sometimes find it hard to balance the two of them and feel like you did this really well, especially late in your career. Was it a mindset? thing how did you find a good balance and for pro have you coached any players that struggled to find this balance was there anything you did to help them not to overshare or to be too selfish thanks in advance for your response keep up the good work that's from nathaniel why don't you take this one first pro when you have this mindset of you know being aggressive you always want players to be aggressive first of all you got to sort of have them fit the role that they're going to have for that team if the coach the head coach wants them to be scorers they want them to be more aggressive then you obviously you, you sort of lean them in that direction of being a little more aggressive trying to score if it's just hey sitting in the corner you wait for somebody to get double team they're going to pass to you you're not going to get a lot of shots and then we get ready for that uh, that that role so what I always tell a player is, look, if you have an open shot, you take it, especially if that's a shot that we want you to take. If you drive it and you're aggressive to score, if you're trying to work so hard to get your shot off where you got to take these contested shots where if it's off one foot and all this bullshit that you see a lot of these players do today, then you're just working too hard. You're not built for that. That's not, that's not good team basketball. If you drive it and you and you have it where you're going to force two two defenders on the ball, then you got to share the ball. You got to share it to an open player. Somebody's open. So I try to have players take as many mild to uncontested shots as possible. And then if there's somebody open, you got to look. But you're going to make mistakes where you're going to take tough shots at first. But you got to learn what's a good shot for you. But you got to be aggressive and you got to look. If you're going to force multiple defenders to you, then you make plays for other people. If the plays call for you not to shoot and to give it to somebody, obviously you're going to give it up. But if you have an opening, especially on a shot that a team wants you to take, and it's going to be a good shot for you, then you say, yeah, that's the shot we want you to take. It's all trial and error. We watch film on it. We talk to players about it. We, we continue to work on things. We continue to talk to them after games, let them decompress a little bit, and then talk to them about it. 
it's going to be a lot of trial and error and, and until you get it. It's not, it's not going to be perfect a lot of times, but you got to continuously tell them their role, what you expect from them, and then be aggressive. But if you see multiple defenders, you see it, def- you know, you got to continue to try to make plays for your teammates and try to pl- play winning basketball. But, you know, it, sometimes it's not a direct black and white answer. It, it's sometimes a lot of gray in it where they got to make decisions on top, you know, a little bit of a tough shot or you make that play to somebody else, but you continuously communicate and give them feedback and try to help them through those times and let them pick themselves up and then, you know, survive to play another day, you know? Yeah, no doubt. And I've, I've gone in two different aspects of my basketball life, like being the number one, two option for five or six years and then and then um, obviously being a role player. So I kind of understand both sides of it. And look, probably a knock on me through my career when I was the one and two option was I was probably too unselfish. You know, I need to be more selfish at times to try and get my own and get, get buckets and get us going. But I was always taught to make the right play. So what I mean by this is, you know, if some guy's rotated to me, I'm going to make that pass. And then sometimes you're making it to a guy that's not a three-point shooter and your coach is like, what are you doing? Like, you've, you've basically thrown it to a guy that we don't want to take that shot anyway. Just take it yourself. So, I struggle with that a little bit at times and there is there is no right answer for it. I think with guys that like if you factor in Jordan Clarkson, the only reason I'll mention him is because the Jazz game's on right now and they're absolutely mauling Orlando. But he's a guy that comes off the bench his mentality has to be super uber aggressive no matter what. He's coming off the bench for 15, 20, 25 minutes. We need you to get 20 for us. We don't, you know, if you have a few assists every now and then and get others involved, but that's a guy that's not going to play 40 minutes. So, you know, you don't have to worry about um, him being too selfish because you can dictate his his game by his minutes. Whereas if you're a, a starting point guard, that's a whole different story. You know, you, you don't want to be taking 25 field goals a game if you're a, if you're a starting point guard because you got to be cognizant of, I've got a guy that needs to get shots. I've got a guy, a big guy that probably won't rebound or defend as hard if we don't give him some love every now and then. I've got a three-point shooter over there. So there's a lot that goes into it. Like Pro said, you, you can never fault coming out of the gates being aggressive. And then you just you just adapt to okay, they're doubling me early. I need to get this pass out earlier. Okay, they're not doubling for a couple of minutes because they're in the they're in foul trouble. They're in the bonus if they foul me. So now I can be a little bit more aggressive. And and Steph, I always bring up Steph. Steph was really good at this and he was really good at understanding, especially towards the, the later end of, of my time with him of knowing when a guy was down on confidence and I need to get him an open shot or I need to keep Bogues engaged sending good screens for me so I'm going to run a lob play for him or whatever it was, right? And that that comes down to just basketball IQ. So, it all depends with your role. There's a lot of different factors and like Pro said, it's something that you got to learn along the way and there's not one, one real answer for, for everybody. Yeah, and if you're a really good player, you know, I remember with Kobe, like, you know, you know Bogues talked about Steph being good at like you know, if a guy's struggling, give him the ball. Like, we would talk about, you know, before games, we would talk about, you know, I'd ask him all the time, how's Pau doing? How's Lamar doing? You know, why don't you get these guys some easy looks first? You don't, you, you could sort of lighten up on your offensive load the first quarter. Get these guys easy looks. They're going to be doubling you, obviously. Get them easy looks early. Set the table. We all, that's what I used to call it. Just set the table early. Build your lead, set the table where you don't really have to work that hard to get offense. And now step on the gas, second quarter, get into the third, you know, the, the, the middle eight or whatever you want to call it, last four minutes of the third, first four minutes of the fourth, actually, and, and really step on the gas and, and try to really be aggressive. But like, if you have players that are sort of like a little sensitive or not having a good week, you know, you want to set the table early, especially if you're going to be you know, getting double teamed a lot, 
Give those guys easy looks. Get your get get your team on the board a little bit, and then you could be aggressive a little bit more aggressive later in the game. And it just gives the team a different look because usually at most levels, if a team if a player is the best player in the team, your opponent's looking for you to like force all these shots, especially in today's game, where if you're setting the table early, getting them easy looks, and then be aggressive scoring. Now you're talking about a team that's really hard to stop, especially if you're an elite level player at that level. So. Yeah, I, I agree with Bogues. Like, set the table early, you know, and then be aggressive trying to score unless you get a big-time mismatch and then you, you want to be aggressive, you know, looking to score right off the bat. But it's always good to set the table and then be aggressive looking for yours. It just makes everything a little easier. And as I've got this game in the background, Orlando, Utah, don't be, I believe it was RJ Hampton. Uh, <laughs> he just, they are down 115 to 77 right now in the fourth quarter with eight minutes left. He's on a fast break, tries to dunk on someone, gets fouled, and does push-ups. Down for what? Does push-ups. It? What are they down? 35 points? Don't be that guy. A- anyway, that's just something I just had to say because I just saw him. Like, Why is he? You know, I'm, I'm too strong for you to foul me hard. Uh, yeah, but you're down, you're down 37 points, buddy. Like, you know, cut it out. So, Jesus Christ. <laughs> just a little, just a little old man rant. But we had two more questions. We'll move on from those and save those for next week as we're, we're biding time with our long-winded answers. You have some things for me, don't you, Pro? Oh, my fault. Yeah, for sure. My bad about by the long-winded answers, my man. Oh, it's both of us. We talk too much. <laughs> you've got some slang. Yeah, you've got some slang for me. Yeah, you gave me the slang thing last week, the citizenship test, whatever the fuck you called it, from Australia. I'm not only going to give you slang question for the United States. I'm even going to be better. Boston slang oh, and see no. what the fuck you know about Boston <laughs> slang, all right? So, you know, this is Boston slang is probably the best slang on the fucking planet. On the fucking planet. I've seen Departed. Does that help? Departed, The Town, Black oh, Mass. Oh, The Town. All of the it. The Town is a great movie. Spencer for Hire, City on a Fucking Hill with <laughs> Matt, uh, with uh, Kevin Bacon on Showtime. All that shit. All right. I'm going to give you about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions. I'm going to give you an easy one first. Wicked. Wicked? Wicked. The word wicked, uh, it's, uh, I think it, it means awesome, very good, or wicked can also mean like a wicked witch. So It said, it said okay, it's very. So, very. Like, wicked good, wicked awesome. You know, like, wicked is like very. Uh, I, I, I 50, 50% that. I get 0.5 for that. You know, you know what we're going to do? Let's erase that shit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to combine these two. <laughs> I'm going to combine two because wicked's good. But it has to be with something else. So I'm going to give you two for the price of one. All right. So here's the first one. Wicked Pisser. Wicked Pisser. Wicked Pisser. P-I-S-S-A. Oh, wow. Very, it's awesome. A very pisser. It's very raining outside. Fuck no. Awesome. Very awesome. That kid's Wicked Pisser. This fucking day Wicked Pisser. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, for one. Okay. All right. Clicker. Spell it. C L I C K A. Clicker. Oh, my goodness. Wow. You're killing me. I'm looking at any of these. A clicker. I can only relate to Australia, but a clicker is. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's an object. It's an object. A clicker. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, I have no idea. Remote control. Remote control. There you go. Hey, Pat, give me the fucking clicker, would you? Beautiful. Got one, yeah, baby. so clicker. Okay. One for two. Not bad. All right. Paula. P-A-H-L-A. Paula. 
Yeah, HLA, man. What? Jeez. Uh, okay, parlor. Would that be a, a gambling reference? No, fuck no. It's a fucking living room. It's, hey, why don't we watch TV in the parlor? <laughs> All right, kids, what? we're going to go to the parlor. Hey, look. Are you gonna we're a fucked up community. Slang? Can but you explain why it's called parlor? Is there a reason? No, this says Paula. That's that's what it is. <laughs> I thought my name was asshole until I was about eleven. So hey, that's just the environment we live in. Okay, next one. All right, so Paula Clicker, Bubbler. Oh, Bubbler. That's a B U B B L A. That's a water fountain, right? Yeah, drink drink fountain. I know yeah, that's that one. easy one. Yep, yep. All right, Nosa. What? Nosa. N O S U H. Nosa. Oh man, not sure. Not sure. Yeah, that's my answer. Not sure. No, eh, not close, but no cigar. No, uh, no way. No fucking way. No sir. No fucking way. Yeah. I'll no. give you one more. I need this one to win because you were two for five. So I'm going to try go three for six. Yeah, I'm going to give you an easy one. Seller. Seller. Spell it. C e l l a r. Yeah. C e l l a r. Basement. Basement. There you go. Bang. Got we, it. we use that one as well. Euro- Europeans use that one as well. So and, and Australians, I think. But yeah. I win. Yeah. Unlucky. Have you seen F is for Family? No. It's good? Yeah. So, it's it's Bill Burr. It's his uh, kind of his childhood in cartoon form and it's got him in it as himself, but it's in cartoon form. I highly recommend it. I think it's on Netflix, F is for Family, and it's just his Boston uh-huh. dad just being an asshole to him. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's great. It's very, hey, very good. You'll like it. They use in, on this show with Kevin Bacon- it's a, it's a pretty good show. Not a great show, but it's a good show. City on the Hill. It takes place in my home, a lot of it in the first season of my hometown in Boston, in Revere Beach. It's a town right outside of Boston. But it's about Kevin Bacon, who's this like corrupt FBI agent. It's fucking great because they use every slang on Boston on almost every fucking show. It's great. It, it, it's For me, it's more funny and it's, and it's actually pretty factual because a lot of the things they talk about is stuff that that was dealing with in Boston in the like early to mid nineties. But yeah, so but I'll check that uh, F is for Family show up. F is for Family is good. Yeah, but probably need some subtitles watching that movie. <laughs> no doubt about it. Self admitted. All right, man. Another one wrapped up. Hopefully, we didn't bore you too much with our uh, our slang rants. But um, thanks to everyone tuning in. Numbers are doing well. Appreciate all the support. And once again, thanks to Mike at Hoop Consultants. We will see you all next week. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks.